0: welcome to the effortless swimming podcast the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water become a better swimmer and live a better life here's your host brenton ford
1: welcome to the effortless swimming podcast this is episode number 121 where my guest is three-time olympian and olympic bronze medalist brent hayden welcome to the call brent hey thanks for having me brenton apart from having a uh, a great name it's uh you've, <laughs> had, a, <laughs> you've had a lot of uh, amazing achievements over the last um, couple of years with your swimming and um, you've been in the, the swim world for a very long time and uh, retired in 2012. What's um, for you, I mean, there's a lot of achievements that you've that you've done. What's um, for you, what's probably the biggest one in terms of what are you most proud of?
0: Um, you know, I kind of go back and forth between you know, my bronze medal in London and then my world championship title in 2007. Um, both of those were for me, big achievements, um, you know, on paper, obviously they look like big achievements, um, but they both kind of had these sort of underlying um, stories that sort of made them sort of bigger for, for myself personally. And so sometimes like, I just, I don't know which one's a bigger, bigger achievement, but uh, some days, you know the uh, the Olympic bronze medal is the biggest one, and uh, then the next day, I'm like you know what, I think my World Championship one was a little bit bigger. So I, I don't have a better answer than that for you.
1: And that's what I, that's what I think is really interesting is the story behind the achievements that you see. You know, you watch the Olympics, and oh, there's a there's a gold, there's a silver, there's a bronze, but so much work goes into getting to that place. So for you, for the um, for the World Champs gold, what was the uh, the story behind that?
0: Oh. Well, the night before, um, you know, I boarded the plane down to, you know, to fly down to Australia, my parents gave me a, um, a call and they, they told me I had to go to the hospital because my grandfather was, um, he wasn't doing so well. And, uh, so I I went to the hospital and, uh, he was, um, in hospice. They knew that he was not going to last much longer. And I, I, found out that night that you know he was probably gonna die uh, during my trip down to Australia. So that night, while I was just sitting beside him, um, beside his bed, uh, the last thing, and the only thing I actually got to tell him that night was that I was going to the world championships tomorrow and I'm gonna win him a medal. And you know, I got the, sorry, I got the email, um, oh, my, actually my coach got an email from my dad, uh, four or five days later, uh, saying that he had, uh, passed away. So when I went out to swim, you know, I was, you know, lane six, uh, I'd never really done, um, anything extraordinary in terms of individual performances. i had had a lot of uh, successes on the Canadian relay team. And I, I don't think anybody was expecting, um, me to get a medal, but I, I just kind of felt like I had a little bit more uh, reason to succeed than the other swimmers. And ultimately, I, I think that's why uh, why I succeeded and why I was able to dig deeper than I'd ever uh, dug before uh, was because of that you know promise I made to my grandfather. I actually kind of felt like he was kind of there in the stadium. And when I walked out on the pool deck, I actually um, told myself that he was in the stand
1: somewhere. That's amazing. Did it? did it affect you throughout the trip where you, was it something you were constantly thinking about and you're able to, I guess, draw, draw strength from it or was it, or was there a time throughout that trip where it started to affect you in a negative way at all?
0: Um, I, I don't think it ever affected me uh, in a negative way because, you know, it was, it was nothing but love. Um, you know, I, I knew that, you know, We didn't really have much time with them before that um, as well, because, you know, my grandma had passed away years before. Um, He was living on his own and his health had just sort of been uh, deteriorating very slowly ever since. Um, So it was kind of like, you know, which year is it going to be? So it wasn't wasn't out of the um, it wasn't unexpected per se. Um. You know around the time but definitely in the moment like oh my god like it's going to happen now like that was definitely unexpected so i think when uh, when it happened i was obviously very sad i i went into the the locker room um and you know by myself and just um just cried it all out and uh i the only the only thing was going to the pool that day uh riding the bus uh that was the most nervous i'd ever felt out of any competition including uh, including my london uh, olympics or I literally just felt like my heart was just going to pound right through my chest and possibly stop. Like I, I was feeling so scared, but I just kept telling myself that, um, you know, I'm feeling this way because what I'm about to do is incredibly important. And, uh, I think in the end that ended up helping, uh, lift me up to a level that I'd never been able to, to get to before. And and again, like it's, it's all out of love.
1: Mm. I remember my, my coach telling me that, if you if you got if you've got nerves that's a good thing it means that this race means something to you and it it sounds like having your heart pounding that hard on the bus on the way to the pool that you it obviously you knew how much it uh, it meant to you and talk me through that race like what would how did it go down and like how did you, you pace it what was it like behind the blocks you know was it um completely different than anything you'd experienced before in terms of how you felt before the race
0: oh. Yeah. I, I, I totally never felt that way before. And I I don't think I'd ever felt that way. Um, again, um, usually when, um, when I'm behind the blocks, um, you know, I'm, I'm running through the race, uh, visually, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, my start, my turns, my breakouts, my breath. I'm thinking about like, okay, well, if I hit the wall where my body just screams, stop, like, what am I going to tell myself to, to keep going? Um, I'm thinking about everything um, I can, uh, except for, except for the results, because I'd really try to focus on the things that I can control. So the things that I'm doing in my own lane. However, in this moment, um, I was only thinking about my grandpa and I was just thinking about the reason why I, I had to succeed. Um, you know, just remembering the promise that, that I'd made to him. So I I didn't even think about my stars. I didn't think about my turn. I didn't think about anything um before the race except for uh except for that promise and uh just you know that you know he's somewhere in the stands uh right now uh watching me and i just want to make him proud
1: that's awesome and then um and then leading well then the 2012 olympics um what was the the story leading up to that
0: um so i I think this is also one of the reasons why I, i chose to retire uh as well so from 2008 onwards, beginning at the 2008 uh, Canadian Trials, uh, I, I started to experience uh, crazy um, chronic back spasms. Um, at the 2008 Trials, I actually um, I qualified for the team, and then immediately getting out of the pool for my warm down, I suffered a back spasm and had to spend the night in the hospital. And my back was so contorted, they actually couldn't even take an X-ray of my back because they couldn't get a clear image. Um, <laughs> so I, I ended up not being able to compete in the 50 free. Uh, so that's, that's actually the reason why I didn't uh, swim that at the, uh, at the Beijing games. Um, so these spasms had been hurting my career, um, throughout. Although, you know, if you look at my results, they, you wouldn't really, really be able to tell because, um, you know, apart from the other you know, 2008 games, but that was like, had my, uh, failure at those games had nothing to do with my back. That was all, uh, that was all on me. Um, but you know, um, doing you know, Commonwealth champion in 2010 and, and you know, double champion rather, and and with Games records, uh 2011 silver medal, uh, 2009 Canadian record with a fourth place finish at the World champs. But then 2012, you know, I, I'd always just sort of seemed to be able to um, to get through it and uh, and make it work. But for um, for four days, only two weeks before those games, I had another back spasm uh, while at staging camp and i couldn't walk for those four days because my back was just so um so spazzed up so seized up um that like just trying to get out of the bed to you know go brush my teeth was um an virtually an impossible task and so for four days i'm just thinking to myself like am i even going to get to compete like we're so close to the games usually when these happen you know i have at least like a couple months um you know lots of it's almost like lots of time um you know in a way but now we're just a couple weeks out like even if I'm walking again, am I going to be at the, you know, uh, well enough to actually compete at the Olympics for a medal, or am I just going to basically be showing up and, you know, trying not to like swim safe. So I don't have a back spasm. So I actually started thinking that I might actually just retire before the games, just take myself out of the equation. Cause I'd already failed really bad at two Olympics. I don't think I would have been able to handle going through a third one and just kind of bombing again. Um, but my coach just looked at me one day and just said, um, you know, he just, he just kind of looks at me and I actually looked at him and he just goes, well, what's wrong with you right now? I said, oh, I don't want to retire before the games. And he just kind of gives me that look. And he goes, well, why don't you just retire then? And that the thought of that actually just made me so angry. And I actually ended up like blowing up at my coach, which I never do. <laughs> um, but Then two days after that, I was back on the water swimming as if nothing had ever gone wrong. And I know that in that moment, my coach was doing what good coaches do. They, they say exactly what they need to say in order to get, you know, exactly what they need out of you. So um, leading up into the games now, um, you know, I'm thinking about myself that, you know, I wasn't able to walk for four days, only two weeks before. Um, you know, my body has been feeling like it's broken. Actually, that the day of the final, um, my rib was actually out of place. Um, Just because of all the all the racing I'd already been doing still remnants from that back spasm just kind of tweaked a little muscle between the rib and kind of Pulled that out of place. So I felt like my rib was gonna stick out of my uh, punch through my skin Uh, So I I just felt like I had every reason why I shouldn't have succeeded in London Um, But I had every reason why I should succeed in Beijing and I didn't do it. So Going into the London games having all these reasons why it shouldn't succeed um, and ultimately that was when I did uh, I don't know if any other color could, of metal could have actually been um, any any better uh, for me. Like for me, that bronze metal really does feel like gold because I feel like I just had overcome this huge challenge that is greater than the the results um, actually show.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And those, uh, with the back spasms, was it something that continues today? Did you ever sort of get to the root of it?
0: yeah, I, I still suffer them uh, from them uh, today, but not not nearly as much because i'm I'm not um, I'm not pushing my body to the limits nearly as much as as I once was, obviously. Um, I have had a couple of them where, you know, I was unable to walk for four days and I'm kind of like reliving uh, those days in Italy all over again. um but what I've been able to do is in the gym, just taking uh, taking the time to slowly build up my back because I don't have you know um, I don't have a competition I'm getting ready for. So I don't have a deadline on when I need to be strong and healthy. I got the rest of my life ahead of me. So I've just been taking my time and just slowly building up my strength. Because um, I used to never be able to do any lower um, back exercises at all. They were completely off my training uh, regimen because anytime I did anything with my lower back, spasms so as we were doing that my the downside was that my lower body strength was also getting weaker and weaker and weaker so my legs by the time I got to London were like like they were real chicken legs um <laughs> and so I was like well I, I don't really want to have chicken legs for the rest of my life so and I, and I also don't have you know um massage and physio and chiro at my disposal anymore so I got to make sure that I get my body uh, stronger so I'm doing deadlifts now which I've I, you know um eight years ago or sorry even six years ago i would never have even thought i would have been able to do i'm, there, I'm not going heavy but just the fact that i'm doing them is uh has, has been a big improvement
1: yeah that's uh because i mean that puts a, a lot of strain on the on your lower back i think because i've got a, nothing like you've got but just had a bad lower back for a couple of years and uh just the, even the thought of deadlifts i okay nah, I'd, I'd really have to start light with that so the fact that you're doing them um must mean you've gotten to a pretty good place with your your back strength and um i think the uh every aussie listening to this would remember the the 100 free from the the london games was when the hope of australia was riding on james magnuson's shoulder uh shoulders as he yeah he went so fast in the olympic trials that uh i think he i don't know if he broke the world record or he's just off it but he was about at least half a second ahead of pretty much anyone in the world that year. And then he got pipped out by Nathan Adrian. And then, um, yeah, and then you were not too far behind. So I think uh, all of Australia was watching that 100-meter freestyle final.
0: Yeah, well, I I definitely think, um, you know, I was surprised um, myself as well. I think with the rest of the world, um, and you could watch that race over and over and over again and just see you know how close that was. I mean, it was one one hundredth, and then there was me. I think it was, I was another two or four ahead of uh, ahead of fourth place as well. I mean, there was a bit more of a gap between me and James, but uh, I, it's just crazy how just like the slightest little, littlest thing can just um, you know make you a hero, or yeah. you know, people kind of look at you and go, well, what happened? And you know, I, in the end, you know, I still think that you know, a silver medal is still in an incredible, um, achievement. Like who, who, who could ever think that when they're a kid, they would be looking up in the, in their future and think, wow, one day I'm going to be an Olympic silver medalist and that's going to let people down.
1: That's (laughs) right. Exactly
0: right. But you know, it's, it's a one, 100 that, um, you know, it it can put you on one side of the coin or or the other.
1: And then it kind of, you know, sort of spiraled from there. Whereas the, the four by one men's relay, uh, just, I don't even know if they got a medal. They didn't, they did not race well at the Olympics. And then there was a whole review with Australian swimming. It was just like, yeah, just uh, did, it wasn't a great Olympics for the Aussies. And a, a lot of it sort of started from there. And as you said, it's just such a minor thing. Um, but it can make such a difference when, if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, it's, a, it's still an amazing swim. It's just everyone had built it up so much in their mind. So, um, yeah, I felt bad for him. It just felt so bad. And same with Kate Campbell at the 2016 games, just so much pressure. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to, to pull it off. But um, that sport, you know, it's, um, it, it can feel like life and death at times. But um, if you can take that step back, you, um, you go, okay, well, life's, life's not that bad.
0: Oh yeah no for sure like like that is sport like sport is unscripted right so if it if sport was scripted you know it wouldn't it just wouldn't be sport so we got we got to go with it no matter no matter whether it's good or it's bad Yeah it, exactly
1: it, right that's what makes it exciting Yeah and um you I was sort of you know looking up uh, some things before before we jumped on this call um i read about you um after 2004 olympic games in athens about uh, the riot police can you do you want to go into <laughs> that at all it's just uh, i thought that yeah, was sure. pretty
0: funny yeah no problem I, I think um performance aside i probably had the worst olympic experience out of any athlete uh, <laughs> at those games <laughs> you, you know because one i already had you know as i said I, I mentioned earlier i failed at you know my two previous olympics you know i failed really bad uh at the Athens Olympics, because you know something as stupid as my alarm clock wasn't set properly, so it went off at three thirty in the morning. I got up thinking it was seven. I was feeling all Olympic that day. <laughs> got to the cafeteria, just looked at, just looked at the janitor, and realized there's nobody else here. It's something's wrong. And look at my phone. I'm like, oh my god, it's three thirty in the morning, and I just totally ruined my Olympics for like, you know, those were like the big days I was racing, and I just I couldn't get my head back around it. Totally botched the relay, my individual performances, everything. And so, you know, after after we were done, um, you know, it was the night before the closing ceremonies, uh, just out with a bunch of uh, other athletes, um, you know, swimmers and um, from other countries as well as other sports. We were just out, out having a good time and I think in my mind, you know, kind of trying to think like, okay, I'm just going to try to forget how bad my swimming was and I'm just going to try and have a little bit of fun. And, you know, when I probably should have gone back to the village, you know, some sometime after midnight, you know, I was like, oh, well, we'll just go. We'll just go to one more place. Right. And we're walking down the street um, and we just see this whole line of riot police blocking the end of the street. And I'm thinking, OK, well, that's not a good sign. Right? So says they, they all have their shields on, their helmets. Um, they got their batons. And then we, we kind of turned around. We started looking at each other like, OK, well, where do we go now? And next thing you know, these um, everybody that was kind of just walking around the street, people that looked like they had just come from the club or the or the bar, um, they just started like pulling dumpsters into the streets and picking up whatever rocks and bottles they were finding and just throwing them down the street at the at the cops. And right away, you could just hear the rubber bullets starting to fire and the tear gas starting to fire. Um, and um, the whole the line that was standing shoulder to shoulder suddenly started running towards us. So, uh, me and the other athletes, we just ran back into the bar that we had just come from, just to get out of the street because I didn't want to get hit by a rubber bullet. And while I'm standing there thinking I'm safe, this uh, I just see this hand reach over my shoulder, grabbing me by the shirt, and yanks me out into the street. And I got thrown face down in the in the street and uh, beaten with their their billy clubs and uh, kick, you know, getting kicked with their steel-toed boots. It lasted for a few minutes. So while I'm on the while I'm on the street, I'm covering my covering my head with my arms. okay? So, and with one arm, I reach into my pocket and I pull my accreditation because they had it uh, attached to my belt loop because you don't want to lose that thing. <laughs> and they ended up just ripping it off and just tossing it aside. One of the other athletes had to pick it up later. I still have it. so it was it's all completely like mangoes. like they crumpled it up and threw it away, and they just continued to beat me, even though you know they they knew I was an athlete. Um, Eventually, they stopped. I just threw my hands behind my back. I was like, you know what? Just, just handcuff me. Just don't hit me anymore. I don't <laughs> care. They took me down the street, threw me headfirst um, into the corner of a building, and uh, they just kept arresting more people and bringing them over and just like throwing them in a the pile on top of me. And every time I tried to ask, like, okay, well, what happened here? Like, Why did you guys actually do this? Um, I was, pro- I was <laughs> pretty much like I had tears in my eyes, too. And they would just scream at me in Greek. And a couple of times would like threaten me by holding up a can of pepper spray in my face. They like all threatening to to spray me. Um and then eventually they just released me. And their own the only explanation from the one guy that I remember that was able to speak English was um the reason why they arrested me was because I was the tallest one in the group and I was wearing a dark shirt. Right? Like basically I was just an I was the easiest target that they could see. Right? So <laughs> oh
1: nothing
0: did um, although maybe running away might've in their mind might've been like, Oh, he must've done something. It was like, well, no, I just don't want to get hit by a rubber bullet. Like I'm not going to stand here. So when I got home, um, you know, I didn't want to talk about, it. I didn't want to get let that get out because I had already, I was already dealing with a lot of, um, embarrassment. Um, you know, a lot of negative things were just being said about, uh, me and the press already, just because like, um, if you look at the relay, um, my leg of the relay is really where what cost us the medal. So while I was trying to deal with that, um the whole riot incident ended up getting out as well. And then I had to relive that and start doing all these interviews about that. And then one reporter ended up getting the whole story wrong and then um said it happened the night before the relay. And so not me being up, like, or waking up early because of my alarm clock. Now, suddenly, the reason why I um, I did poorly on the relay was because I decided to go out partying the night before and forget the fact that I got beat up by a ride police. So this oh, guy my God. That's... The <laughs> or like a semi-broken arm. Because I couldn't move my arm for for uh, almost a month after that uh, because of a good crack I took on the elbow while I was protecting my head.
1: And you, you missed World Short Course Chance because of it as well. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Wow. Well, it makes for a good story now, though, looking at the the, oh, probably yeah. down the positive out of it.
0: I'm totally over it now, but I, at the time, I, I actually was considering quitting swimming because, you know, wow. I dreamed of going to the Olympics my entire life. And then I actually got there, you know, Athens of all places too, you know, it's the birthplace of the Olympics. So, <laughs> like, it was like a dream come true. And then I sucked in the pool and then I got beat up by riot police. I was like... <laughs> why do I want to do this anymore? This is, this is awful. Um, but thank God, like, um, you know, I had a, I have a great coach, uh, you know, my coach, Tom Johnson, um, who, um, he really stuck by me and, uh, and helped me work through it. I was working with a, with a sports psychologist, talking with my family, um, you know, my parents all the time or my, or my friends, anybody who was willing to listen. So I I had to kind of like let it out of the bottle, so to speak. And, uh, Eventually, I just I just came to realize that you know that was a really crappy chapter of 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 a much bigger book that I still have yet to write, and so within that year, you know, we came back to the world champs in Montreal, you know, um, almost a home crowd. Um, when I say almost, it's just you know I'm from Vancouver, so about as about as home crowd for world championships as I can get, and you know, two silver medals on on relays just a year after, less than a year after I thought I was going to quit.
1: Mm, it's uh. It seems like it happens so often where the, the point where you're almost ready to throw it all in around that next corner is where you, your biggest success lies or you, that, that next real high or reward of that hard work that you've put in. And it sounds like that was the case in, uh, in Montreal. And you were, um, you were the only swimmer in the 2009 World Champs not to wear a super suit in the 100 free final.
0: Yeah, probably not the best decision
1: <laughs> i was wondering <laughs> like what so what was the um so for those that, that don't sort of know um just g- i guess give me a little bit of background on on t- what 2000 the 2009 world champs were like with the super suits and so on but um what was the yeah what was the decision behind that
0: um well that was a decision that um that my coach and i um sort of made um but ultimately it came down to um contract obligations. Um, they kind of got in the way of, of my performance. Um, you know, I, I had, a, I had come to contracts, um, and, um, Swimming Canada had, um, had some agreements of what the, uh, the swimmers would wear, uh, as well. So, uh, it basically came down to, um, you know, other people were telling me that I wasn't allowed to wear the same suit as the rest of the swimmers. And unfortunately that, that was the reason why I actually wanted to wear the suit. And, um, I still kind of get angry about it, even though I, you know, I try to just accept the fact that it is what it is. But I, I do kind of get angry that um, that I didn't just kind of not listen to them and just kind of go rogue a little bit just so I could wear that suit. Because I I, I believe in that performance, I would have beaten Caesar. I think I would have mm. I would beat the current world record holder right now. I mean, sure, it would have been in a bodysuit, but, you know, I didn't get any other. I, I had never broken individual uh, world record in that one. Would have been uh would have been sweet I and mean, caesar still has it too so and, and i don't think he's complaining that it was in a bodysuit so
1: <laughs> no that good chance that could stand for a very long time although the way caleb dresswell's swimming it um maybe not but because you went you went 47 two and got yeah. fourth and what's, what's the record 20 uh sorry 46.97 yeah yeah so it's Jesus. 40- yeah because that's a that's a really quick swim without the um that the super suit because I mean it was something like thirty six of thirty seven world records got broken at that meet or something crazy the whole the whole record books just got wiped with yeah, Paterno suits. It was
0: absolutely ridiculous. Like it, people were surprised when a world record didn't get broken. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like yeah. what? Nobody broke a world record in that race, really?
1: Yeah. What's yeah? What's what's going wrong? but now the good thing is that people are starting to break those records again with just the well men with just the jammers and the women with the knee length suits which is great i think it's uh swimming's had to evolve to get past or to be able to break those world records again which is um which has been really good to see and it's happening in a lot of events
0: yeah no that's i've been um i really enjoyed watching those world records uh get broken Um, but you know, I think it just comes down to the fact that one, um, I think there's, there's a belief, uh, now that those records aren't, aren't invincible, um, Mm -hmm. anymore Uh, after the first few finally got broken, all of a sudden, like everybody started to believe in themselves, realize that, you know, that is possible. Um, and then also too, just, you know, the advancements in, you know, uh, just sports nutrition and, and recovery as well. And people just kind of making tweaks to the techniques, right? Like. I remember I grew up in, you know, um, high elbow freestyle um, days and now they seem to be doing more open arm because, you know, higher, you know, they can get a higher turnover, right? So it's, it's interesting, these little tweaks that we can still do, um, that we can still actually figure out how we can actually get faster without having to rely on technology to do it.
1: Yeah, it's been, been really good to see. And, um, and as you said, there's, they're not, they're teaching some very different things in terms of technique, like even with the 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 sprinters, um, like I think Dressley's is pretty much it's like a straight arm freestyle, and I mean Klimov was the same back in the day, and um, and then with breaststroke you've got Adam Peaty who's got this super fast rating, um, Rebecca Sony who's quite unique compared to some of the other breaststrokers. It's uh, you're sort of seeing this some of the technique uh, they're not teaching just one style anymore, which is um, which is really good, and it's just I guess adapting it to whoever they're Whoever the person is, depending on their their height, their strength, or their strengths okay. in the stroke, it's um yeah it's yeah. Uh, it's so, really exciting. Uh,
0: there's no cookie cutter uh, technique anymore that's going to work for everybody. Like, um everybody's going to have to do something that's going to work just a little bit better for their body than it would have worked for for somebody else. And um so I I think the one thing that's really been great is that you've been seeing a bit of a renaissance among the coaches um, as they've started to realize that. Um, there's got to be more one, than one technique across swimmers. You Used to walk to a club, like on the deck of a club, and you'd see everybody would be doing the exact same freestyle, the exact same breaststroke, you know, butterfly or, or um, backstroke. And now you're kind of seeing, you know, a bunch of different styles um, on on the one team. As swimmers are also um, more comfortable being able to kind of, um, you know, kind of listen to their own um, body's analytics, right? Because there's no um, there's no better feedback than the feeling of water against your own skin, mm-hmm. right? Um, i think i think that's been um i think that's just been really awesome to see
1: yeah and i mean you look at even the 1500 look at sun yang compared to pelotoneri and there couldn't be two more different types of of freestyle there yet oh, they're yeah. both just like they're both as quick as one another and um like i've sort of looked at um well Gregorio's stroke in slow motion quite a bit just to kind of understand what he's doing in, in each part of the stroke and it just it doesn't fit the typical box of uh of, of what you'd expect with freestyle like it's very unique and it's not it's not pretty compared to you know it's not a beautiful stroke but boy it's quick yeah
0: i know that's the thing it, it doesn't need to look pretty the only thing that people care about is what the clock says at the end of the race right nobody cares what you look like while you were doing it
1: exactly right yeah it's uh yeah no no <laughs> nobody asked that question at the end he goes how did how did you look? No, it's like, no, How, I mean, what was your time?
0: Yeah, like it's, it's not diving, it's not figure skating, it's not synchro swimming, right? It's not a judged sport, right? So it's not like, oh, you know, you went sub 48 for 450 freestyle, but you know, point deductions, cause you know, <laughs> you, know you lifted your head up too high on the breath or you know, whatever, you know, not enough dolphin kicks underwater off the wall.
1: Yeah. It, that it, it, Yeah, completely true. And the, I've started open water swimming a couple of years back and I come from a pool background and it was pretty much when I allowed myself to get a little bit scrappy and messy with the stroke that my times in the open water started to really improve because if there's any sort of chop in the water you, and you're trying to swim with a, a traditional sort of freestyle stroke, the longer smoother stroke, it doesn't work as well as you know being a bit more aggressive on the entry and with the recovery and faster stroke rate so it's just um knowing when and how to make those adaptations um yeah depending on what event you're doing
0: yeah i mean i even look back at my my london race and you know just seeing what uh, um you know how strokes have evolved since then i look at it and go you know what i kind of wish you know maybe i just stuck around a little bit longer because i would have liked to have tried you know opening up my arms a little bit I even look at that race and go, huh, oh, my head position was actually up a little bit too high. So <laughs> even with that metal, like I still know that I, I still had uh, rooms uh, for improvement in terms of, uh, in terms of technique. So it, it would've been cool to stick around a little bit more and uh, play around with my stroke a little bit.
1: Yeah, and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's good to look back at that in hindsight, isn't it? Like I, I sort of tell, tell this story all the time, but like we, with underwater filming, we when I was about 13, 14, we had a guy come in in a scuba suit He'd sit on the bottom of the pool with his big camera in a waterproof case and he would just kind of move the camera along as we swam past. And then we'd look at it on this grainy TV and like it was about 30 seconds of of feedback. Didn't really know what we were looking for or like we had no comparison video to any good swimmers. And so like I just didn't get any value from it. But now we like I run a lot of clinics and we do that underwater filming and the GoPro iPad and you are set. That is all you need to be able to analyze your stroke.
0: Like um, we run our own swim camps uh, up here, and we actually have a um, a swim pro um, uh, package that you know, uh, swim pro from uh, from Australia. We actually we actually oh, yeah. bought from those guys. So we we bring it out to uh, to our swim camps every once in a while, and even uh, swim BC, you know, which, um, you know, BC being British Columbia. Um, when they bring me out to their camps, that they if they can't get their video guy, they ask me to bring my video equipment uh, as well. It is so amazing um, the feedback that now, now that you can get. Um, with those, or even just put them up on a projector. So as the swimmers swim in on a 15 second delay or 30 second delay, after they swim, they can turn around and watch their technique right there and in, in almost real time. Like it's absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, it's just it's so much easier to do these days, and um and I like that setup with the delay because um, I I went to a like an endless pool. What do they call it? The um, uh, anyway, they got the cameras set up there just down you know, not too far from Melbourne at um, an endless pool there and they had a 30-second delay on. And so I was yep. looking at my stroke and then I was going, okay, I need to go a little bit deeper with this hand. I need to do this. And it took me a while to actually make the changes, but I had to make it feel really, really different than what I expected to make those changes. Like if you try and change it a little bit, normally nothing happens. So having that um, that almost instant visual feedback can um, yep. can really save you two years of of, try, of trying to make those changes.
0: It's totally crazy because what you think you might change in your head, um, if it feels good or feels normal, then chances are you actually didn't change anything. So one of the things I, um, I ask my swimmers that I'm working with is, um, do you feel weird? And if they say no, I'm like, well, then you didn't change anything.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: and so I may, I do things that will make them feel totally weird because like, you know, when you make those changes, because swimming is one of those sports where you don't have the, you, you're you not looking at your own body. You can't see what you're doing, right? So you have to rely on, on, on how it feels, right? Uh, like, and proprioception. So finally, when they feel weird, then it's like, okay, well, now you changed something. Right? and that, like it's so crazy how small of a of a change they've actually made and it feels like they they just like change like their complete complete stroke even if they just you know entered the water you know more in front of their shoulder as opposed to outside their shoulder
1: you know uh, absolutely. So- I say that all the time in uh, in clinics and um and sometimes it really takes a bit of pushing or encouragement to get them to be willing to to do that as well it's kind of like they they're stuck within what they're comfortable doing. So to, to be able to get them to be comfortable trying to make those changes and say, it's okay to feel weird. You're probably going to feel a little bit awkward. It's like, you've really just got to go, okay, let's, or what I say to them sometimes is, let's, um, let's just over-exaggerate this thing that we're working on. And if we need to bring it back a bit closer to where it was, we can. But to start with, let's over-exaggerate it and just see where it ends up and just kind of giving them permission to, to do that they sometimes then can, um, you know, be okay with uh, having it feel a little weird.
0: Yeah. And I actually think that the best swimmers are the ones that are always open to change. You know, even if you're a world champion or Olympic champion, you're not sitting there thinking that okay, well this technique won today, it's definitely going to win again in four years from now or two years from now. Like, what won, what won today might not might not win in four years. When I won the World Championships, it was like a 48.45 or something like that. I went a, a, in a bodysuit, right, 48.4 in a bodysuit. I went a 47.8 uh, in a jammer, and I still only got <laughs> third, right? So obviously, I wasn't, even though I'd won at the 2007 World Championships, I didn't think that was gonna be enough um, to win later on down the road. Um, again failed at beijing so not, uh, for a completely different reason but uh but every other time yeah definitely was like no it's not going to carry me through it's only good enough for today and i got to look at and figure out what i can do that's going to make me better tomorrow
1: yeah uh, it's interesting to to see what's going to happen in the next four eight 12 years with the the upcoming swimmers like particularly for i think particularly for for breaststroke just because it's it's probably one of the more obvious changes in stroke with adam Peaty and rebecca something like that they're, they're quite fairly different than than what you would traditionally have is uh as the older sort of breaststroke stroke so i think you'll see a lot of swimmers come through with that sort of style now and then you know maybe 15 20 years down the track we'll see someone with a really long breaststroke and then it might it might start to shift it's like fashion you know it's everyone's sort of wearing okay. 80s 90s fashion <laughs> yeah and and then it just it all goes in the cycle
0: Oh yeah, like um, I even remember when uh, when I was a kid, they always said um, on the recovery, you know, you got to have your palms up, the whole scoop the ice cream, eat the ice cream thing. Then later on, goes no, you got to have your palms down. because why would you turn your wrists up? And now you're looking at Peter like wait, he's got his palms up. So <laughs> what is it? Like I don't even like, I don't even know. I mean, I was never a breaststroker, so maybe somebody else can enlighten me. But yeah. I never understood that.
1: And um, and so if you were uh, if you were coaching today what uh what sort of things would you have your swimmers do if they are sprinters what what do you see as being kind of the key pillars of being able to sprint kind of i guess somewhat of the the real nuances of technique aside what are some of those key components that you feel like made you a really good sprinter well
0: um going from the 2008 games up until 2012 my average distances were um per practice were actually getting shorter uh every single year before i used to do um you know 5k was was short 6500 was was very normal um by the time i got to the london games you know i was averaging about 3500 meters um per workout but what i was doing though uh was increasing the intensity because if you got to, if you're going to swim fast your muscles have to know how to actually go fast um so i did a lot of uh, really simple sets of just 25 pushes for, um you know on like 45 seconds or or a minute depending on how many i'm doing and What I would try to do is I would try to start off uh, trying to get it under 11 seconds flat. And then by the end of it, I'm trying to keep it still under 11 seconds flat. And sometimes, actually quite often, I would actually be able to go even faster. I'd be going like 10 sevens, 10, uh, 10 sixes um, from a push. So what I think there's some times where, you know, we do like, um, you do stretch board stuff like this, um, to, to, to help, but there are things about your technique and how the water is flowing over your body that you can only really feel, um, at high speeds. So I think, uh, if I was coaching, um, first, um, technique, 100%, um, is, is probably the most important. Um, but then after that, you've got to be able to do exactly that technique, um, incredibly fast. And then do the exact same technique incredibly slow. Like um, we're at this training camp um, in Hawaii and my coach, I I didn't know he was doing this, but he had me going through exactly this, um, this sprint set and he took a, took some slow motion video of me and, uh, and some photos while I was sprinting from head on. And then he had me, um, you know, just doing my warm, my you know, between set, easy swim to did the same thing. And then while I was doing cool down, he, he did the exact same thing. Um, and now sometimes when he does presentations, he actually puts these videos in there and shows that no matter what speed Brent was going, he only ever had one technique. <laughs> so I like that. that's, yeah, that's actually a little trick that I actually um tell younger swimmers that when they actually get to cool down, do that cool down with the best technique that you actually can because your muscle memory your muscle memory is going to remember the very last thing you did in the pool.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's um the, what sort of dr- drills uh, or how, mu- how much drilling did you do, particularly, I guess, in the last sort of eight years of your career? I mean, it's a big thing with, uh, with junior swimmers, but how much sort of drills, technique work were you doing in those three and a half, 4K sets?
0: Um, mostly my drills were, were just catch-up drill um, and single arm. I think those are probably the two, um, two easiest ones. And it's, they're great because you get to isolate, um, you know, the arms that you're, that you're thinking about. So you don't have to think about both your arms and your body roll and everything at the same time. You get to kind of like isolate things, um, as well. But I also would all, always do this, um, this like basically like cheating catch up. Whenever my coach said we could do, you know, pick our own drill, I would always do a cheat catch up. And then of course that would always upset my my teammates because they all <laughs> love me. That's not real catch if you're going too fast. Um, but I would just, uh, I, I start my pole just a little bit early. um for for me, just um, you know it helps me with my with my timing and my rhythm, and it's just enough delay, um you know to kind of work on my work on my catch before I kind of you know come back to center because you know, always end up sinking a little bit there. So I'm working on this up drill while still being able to ride up a little bit higher in the water by just you know picking up my speed um, a little bit. So what I do when um, when i'm uh, when I'm teaching now, is I'll go from full catch up in eleven position. Um, I don't like catch up where your hands um, come into a streamline because you never really enter directly in you know in your center line anyways. Um, so put your hands out in the, you know in your shoulder width apart because that's generally where you want to enter. Um, and then I go from full catch up to three quarter catch up, which is like the cheat catch up, and then I go into half catch up. And I mean like three quarters like through the recovery and half through the recovery. So the half catch-up is actually just full-stroke freestyle, but by giving it, um, by saying it like it's a drill, even though the swimmers are swimming, they're thinking about it like it's a drill. So they're thinking about the timing um, of that, and then I I look at them and go, "Okay, well, how'd that feel?" And they kind of look at me and go, "Well, it kind of felt like I was just swimming." I'm like, "Exactly."
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's good. Just to, um, I mean, I work with a lot of adults, and getting the timing of the stroke right is is quite well i wouldn't say one of the most challenging things but it's it's something that i see a a lot of that once they get it if they're not currently having that timing right pretty much where if you look at it from underwater one hand is entering and the other arm's roughly underneath the the shoulder if we're just kind of watching them swim there um for the swimmers that aren't doing that when they do get to that that right timing it just everything seems to connect and and sync up. Whereas before it's like they're on this treadmill that they can't get off. Like it's just, there's no relaxation in the stroke at all.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes that comes from they're starting to catch too early, you know, because they're trying to get their stroke rate up. And so they, Mm. they start to pull too early. Now the thing is like, you always got to have one hand in front of your head before you, before you start to pull back. Right. So I think, um, for, you know, for working on timing, the half catch up is, is a good, place to start because you your other arm, your arm in the recovery, has to be at least at your shoulder or just starting to pass your head. Um, at the earliest possible, that's when you're going to start your catch. Right? Because if you pull before that, then you're going to pull and then both of your arms are going to end up behind your head. Your arm's not going to be quite at halfway yet and your other arms you know, that you're pulling is already going to be past your shoulders as well. And Then you've got nothing to counterbalance the weight of your giant legs that are trailing out behind <laughs> you. And kind of you sink. I, right. I,
1: I love showing that um, when we record people, we often get the bird's eye view, so looking down. I love showing that shot for the people that are pulling through too soon. There's you see both arms behind the head, and it's it's quite a, a funny shot to see. Cause you go Jesus, yeah. how am I actually, how am I actually moving here? Like what's going on? Um, but and it's it helps to make that, it that connection. Go
0: faster if you slow down your catch, right? Just leave your hand and kind of like let it ride up near the surface. Once your arm passes your head. Then you can start your catch. You'll you'll find that your balance in the um, in the water and your center line, everything is just going to be. It's just going to flow so much smoother.
1: Mm. And and what about gym work? How often were you in the gym?
0: Oh, we did that twice a week um, for an hour or two, an hour and a half. Um, but I, I admit, like I've learned a lot more about uh, about the gym, you know, after I retired because when when I was you know on the team training. You know, I didn't really have to know much. I would just do exactly what I was told to do, right? Um, yeah. I think I think if I went back and looked at what looked at how I was doing certain techniques, um, yeah, you know, it probably wouldn't have looked very very good at all. Um, <laughs> shrugging the shoulders when you're doing bicep curls, that you're just thinking about lifting the bar up. You're not really focusing on the you know on the tension in the biceps, right? Just simple simple things um, like that.
1: Yeah, I I sort of um. I sort of have been the same when i was when i was swimming i think i don't it wasn't even really thinking too much about technique because i didn't know what to think about and even strength work it's just like how you know you just be looking at yourself in the mirror in the gym and that's that's about it and just doing the exercises but coming looking at it from more of a coaching perspective there's all these little details and nuances that you want to make sure that your swimmers are doing and there's there's a lot that goes into it and um but it's a very different um Often mindset that a, I guess a coach and a swimmer has, and sometimes you don't want the yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes it can be good for the swimmer just to kind of turn up, do their thing, and do it as as best as possible. If that if you give them more detail than they actually need, you know it, it may it can be unnecessary. But there's so much that goes into it that I think when I was an athlete, I didn't really have any concept of all of that detail that can go into um, swimming and strength and, and all the other things surrounding swimming.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I think, um, you know, definitely for me at, at some point as you get so, um, like, um, I guess like in something like, you know, our performance is measurable, right? Like we, we have to go a certain time. That's how we base our performance. So when we're in the gym, um, we kind of do that with the weights. Like it's, we're thinking more about, um, how heavy can I, can I make this and still be able to, you know, like say on a bench press, like how heavy can I get the bar up? Right. Well, yeah, like I, I could do, um, I could do two plates and up to you know fifteen, another another fifteen pounds uh, per side, um, but that doesn't mean that I was lifting it well, right? I could literally go down to one, uh, one uh, plate aside, do it with perfect technique and almost be just as challenging, right? If I'm doing like perfect technique and working on my timing and just you know just thinking more about time under pressure and just doing everything perfect, so I think a lot of swimmers, um, you know, we. Our, our heads are too much in the actual weights. They sh- our minds should be more in the muscles, right? The weights are just there to challenge the muscles. So add the weight that you need to challenge the muscle, not the weight that you want to be able to push. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'll totally change the way that you, that you work out. And I think uh, when I started doing that um, on my own, I know it was like way faster um, improvements. I still haven't been able to get up to what I actually benched um, at my max. But I feel like my technique doing it has been so much better that if I had actually done it with the same bad technique that I'd done it back then, I'd probably be able to bench more. But um, obviously, that's not the way to do it, and there is always the risk of uh, of injuring yourself uh, as well.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. And uh, what about kicking? Was there much focus on having a, a strong kick being a sprinter um, when you were when you were training, or was a lot of your focus on Primarily the the catch, what happens out in front?
0: Uh, no, there was a lot of focus on on kicking. Like we would we would do uh, whole practices that are just focused on kicking. Um, the four hundred um, kick for time was um, was a staple um, measurement set uh, that my coach would do. Um, you know, at least a few times. Uh, a season. And I was never really a a good kicker. Like I got size 13 feet. Yeah, they're, they're big, but I have the most, um, inflexible, uh, ankles as well. And I don't have like hyper flexible knees. So when I do dolphin kick, I don't get like that big, like hyper extension that you see, uh, on a lot of swimmers getting that huge, awesome, um, extra whip on their kick. I'm just like, Mm. my legs are very, other than being long and big feet, they work very average. Um, (laughs) so, um, there were um, the fastest kicker on our team was actually Brian Johns. Now uh, Brian had uh, he was actually the world record holder for the 400 IM short course um, back in the mid 2000s, I believe. At, like he was like a 402. Um, he had size nine feet, like just tiny. But this guy could kick like no other person that I had ever seen in the world because he had just had the most flexible ankles. Not to mention he was, of course, in shape, but. It was always just so funny that this guy, the guy with the smallest feet, the fastest kicker that I know. Uh, nice.
1: I, remember, <laughs> I, um, I remember seeing this video of, uh, yeah, who was the, I can't remember who the coach was. Um, Might've been something like Laurie Lawrence and he was coaching um, Ian Thorpe. And there was like, you know, this video and this guy comes up to him, up to Ian Thorpe's coach. This is back before he was Ian Thorpe, you know, known as, this is when he was probably 14, not 15. And uh, okay. this guy comes up to him and he goes, um, like, Larry tells him how amazing this Ian Thorpe guy is. Like, he's he's going to be the next superstar. And the guy goes, "Oh, he must have big feet." And he he, he rips into this. He rips into this guy. He's just like, "It's got nothing to do with it, mate." Yeah, <laughs> um, and um, it's got. It's just what you're saying there. It's like, yeah. I mean, yes, big feet can help to a certain extent. But yeah, if you're um, if you're the fastest kicker in the group and you've got size nine, then uh, you don't want to rely on that as an excuse. Yeah, that's, that's,
0: that's like <laughs> um, you know, like. You see swimmers all the time, uh, you know, rocking back on their on their ankles, right? Like, you know, because they're trying to get the, just a little bit of extra uh, ankle flexibility. Like, that's way more important than the than the size of uh, size of your feet, for sure.
1: And uh, and now you've you started a uh, a clothing brand that supports Olympic athletes. And yeah. so how long has that been going for? And what's the um, what was your why behind creating the Astra Athletica?
0: Well, we we started developing this um, in 2013, um, but we actually only launched the apparel uh, just a couple months ago. Um, you know, it was you know learning a lot of things about being an entrepreneur and I uh, had to learn a lot of um, a lot of new skills and uh, had to teach myself just a lot of things on the back end. Uh, you know, being a business owner that it just it just took time um, to to really try to learn everything to a point where it felt like we could actually um, launch this thing, but. Um, the idea came because, uh, after the Olympics, I was doing a lot of motivational speaking and I I started almost like getting depressed. because as soon as I left the room, um, that meant that I was no longer going to be on stage, you know, trying to spread, um, the message that like, it doesn't matter, um, how good or how bad you are at something that everybody has greatness, um, inside them. Like I failed swimming lessons, right? Like that's, that's like my shtick, right? Um, I went from failing swimming lessons to becoming one of one of the fastest uh, swimmers uh, in the world. Like I was world champion. Um, So I wanted to create a brand that uh, that just kind of um, you know inspired people to just keep chasing their dreams and just never giving up and trying to you know we say rise through challenge Uh, because I kind of feel like my entire career um, kind of lived on that. Um, nothing, nothing in my career came easy, but at the same time I needed something, uh, that I could use to actually help other, um, Olympic athletes chase their dreams. Cause I came from a family that was not, um, that was not wealthy. Um, come from a small town. My dad was a full-time paramedic. My, my mom ran a, a small home-based business and, you know, trying my dad and my mom were driving me over 900 kilometers a week just to make sure that I could actually get to swim practice. Cause the next team, the only team that I could train with was the next town over you know 45 kilometers away you know doing that 10 times a week um you know oh, it, it adds so uh, luckily i i got some uh i got some financial help with the uh, victor davis uh, memorial fund um you know i had a, a local business uh gave me gave me a small check and i i don't think i really realized how close um i had actually come to my parents just telling me that they just can't afford to uh, keep taking me to swim practice anymore. Um, and if I hadn't received that help, I don't know if I would have been able to to continue I mean i I admit I was totally oblivious um, to it as far as I knew my parents had money because if they're driving me to practice and they have money and I found out um, years later that that really wasn't the case that they were really stretching themselves uh, really thin. so I want to make sure that no athletes um, in Canada have to face those decisions when they're they have the talent they have the drive they have Everything except the money, you know that they don't have to sit there and go. Okay Well, I can't put gas in my car to get to training All right, so we're not we're not at the point yet where we're able to write big fat checks to to uh, to our athletes so um, The way it works is customers when they come to um, come to our online store at AstraAthletica.com They have a chance to actually um, choose an athlete that they want their purchase to support and by choosing an athlete we'll actually give the customer a 10% discount uh, as our way of saying thank you. And then we donate 10% of the purchase directly into the pocket uh, of the athlete, right? Just to make sure that they got gas in their car making sure that they don't have to, you know, opt for the, you know, the prepackaged frozen dinners that they're actually buying, you know, good food so they're recovering well, um, you know, or maybe um, even being able to get an airplane ticket so they can go to that training camp that they don't so desperately need to go to, right? We just want to make sure that they don't have to, you um, Say no to something that can actually help them uh, chase, continue to chase their dreams.
1: That's yeah, that's a great, great idea, and I like, um, I like how you've um, been able to kind of, I guess, get find find purpose in uh, life after swimming by helping other swimmers who or swimmers, athletes who have who, who might be in a similar situation to you were when you were sort of early on in your in your career. And I mean, what sort of comparisons have you? drawn from swimming and business that is that you found has helped you getting to where you are at the moment with the uh, with Astro Athletica.
0: you know it's it's funny that you know our um, our slogan uh, right now is um is rise through challenge um because that's exactly what um this business has gone through and, and you know i i literally was living that uh, in sports so i think um that's probably been the biggest um um skill that I probably learned uh, from sport, you know, just perseverance because um, you know as I'm learning, uh, as I was able to learn uh, new skills and and take on a lot of um, a lot of the, um, I guess the workings of it on myself as as well as with uh, my wife, who's um, she's actually still studying for her social media um, certification from HootSuite. Um, you know um, we were able to uh, change and adapt and take on anything that we needed to be able to take on in order to to grow this. But there are a lot of challenges that we ended up facing, um, you know in um, in manufacturing. One, uh, we tried to uh, have everything manufactured uh, in Vancouver, and we wasted about um, we we spent a lot of money um, over about two years working with um, pattern makers here, um, you know fabric suppliers. And before we finally realized that, you know, when you calculate everything and and look at what a real uh, retail model is, that there's no way the business would have actually been able to survive if we had actually had it all manufactured here. All right. So we spent a lot of money and a lot of time um, before we were finally able to learn that. So we had to take it all uh, overseas. Now, we ended up actually getting better quality over there and everything uh, works a lot, a lot smoother. But one of the challenges is actually sometimes we had to get the orders all the way over here. Um, and then run them through quality control where we're wearing them and, and throwing them in the wash and then realizing that oh um, You know, this stuff isn't ready to release yet and have to talk to the manufacturer and um, have them actually um, Redo some of the orders. So we actually thought we were going to launch um, Like late 2016 early 2017 now we didn't end up launching until like early summer 2018 because of all these um, all these delays, but we one thing we knew was we weren't going to launch unless everything was absolutely perfect. And so just because we we're facing a challenge, we weren't just going to, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, let's just do it anyways because we need to make money. Like, no, like we want, like, it has to be perfect. And Maybe that's the Olympian in me. You know, it's always gotta be, um, the absolute best and nothing but the best. So I'm not going to settle for anything unless it's the best. Um, so I think the brand itself kind of evolved through the message that we, um, that we're trying to convey that you know you're going to face challenges and that's okay. When you get challenged, you have to you have to either adapt or re-strategize. But there's always a way to to continue moving forward.
1: Yeah, well done on on pushing through that time. And it's um now when I look at any project that I want to want to do, I I kind of time I normally try and times it by two with how long I think it'll take and how much it will cost to do because it's just um it's just it's what I've I've, I've learned over the last couple of years with, with doing, you know, nearly, nearly anything. And, um, cause I'm, I'm kind of going through the same process at the moment with, uh, starting a, a swim products from equipment, um, business that's, that's related to or tied to effortless swimming and, um, working with a, a product designer who's, um, who's licensed product to products to speedo. And, um, he's kind of, it's just like a, almost like a mad scientist when it comes to designing those products and, um, like that's that's one phase of it but then there's the manufacturing phase and uh making sure again it's like making sure it's the right quality it's got the, these products have the right buoyancy and there's a lot that goes into it and um i remember when i first started chatting to him it was his he was thinking oh you know we, we've I've got these designs we can probably you know get these out ready to go in you know two or three months time it won't take that long and and then, this is sort of four or five months ago and it's just it, these things take so much time that um it's really easy to underestimate um, that the time to to do that so um yeah, well done on um on finally launching it. It must have been a um a, a good moment for you to finally get there
0: yeah it it was um, well first off, uh, congratulations on your your swim equipment business. That sounds fantastic um, now, yeah like it, it was definitely a good moment uh, for us, but at the same time, it's like you know. I think that's just the one thing that, you know, that I got from sport that as soon as you've done uh, one race or one championship, you're already looking at, at the next one, there isn't really a whole lot of time to really celebrate before you gotta get back to business and, and Mm -hmm. continue going. When we launched, you know, we definitely, um, we definitely felt very good. You know, we, we had a glass of wine that night, just to like to celebrate, you know, but it wasn't anything crazy because we're already thinking like, okay, we launched Uh, now we got to move the product out the door. Right, we gotta we gotta um, onboard these athletes, and we gotta start making them money. Um, so that way, you know, what we are doing is actually making a difference um, in their lives. And we're not just, you know, a company that just gives athletes free clothes because there are so many companies out there that do that. Right, like we want to make sure that we're actually like the guys that are actually going to be helping them um, along the way. The one thing that's really cool too about about our program that I'll say too is that we also designed. Um, you know, the endorsement or the sponsorship um, deal, uh, with these athletes that, um, you know, we're not really sponsoring them, that we are funding them. So if we actually do help them get to that performance where suddenly they actually have that breakthrough performance because they made, we made sure they're getting, you know, to practice or training with, because of the gas and all the other things I already mentioned that another bigger brand wants to come along and say, Hey, you know what? We love you. We love your story. And we want to sign you. Here's a big fat check. Do you want to take it that we can actually say, you know what, Go for it, right? Okay? We are so happy that we helped you get to that point, right? So there's no kind of like trying to hang on to to, uh, to the athletes if, if um, you know, we just want to help them get to uh, whatever is best for them.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's so important in uh, well, in, in wanting the best for the athletes. You know, thinking back to um, the 2009 World Championship, you know, there's no contract obligation for you to uh, miss out on what everyone else is getting because of, a certain brand has control over you that way. I think um, long, t- like, you know, maybe short-term that, you know, it might hurt the business financially, but long-term, I think it's, it's, it's a better play, you know, actually having the, the athlete's interests at heart um, is is much more important long-term um, for for any person, any any, any business. And that's, um, that's the approach that I've tried to have um, running effortless swimming where, you know, we, on our website, when we have clinics, you know, we have a, I say there's a seven-day cancellation policy if you, you know, can't, if you don't cancel with, before seven days prior to the, the clinic, um, you know, that's it's kind of non-refundable and stuff, but we, we still end up refunding people and moving them to the next clinic. Like, people get sick on the day, whatever it might be, and I just think, yeah. well, oh, yeah, we took a hit, that's, that's fine. Better off long-term to look after people and do the right thing because if I was in their shoes, that's what I'd want, so that's, you know, I kind of make decisions in uh, with that in mind about well, how, how would I feel if I was in their shoes? And, um, and so far, it's worked out really well.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it, for me too, it's like, you know, I got inspired when I was younger. Uh, people helped me uh, when I was younger. they like, I got to be able to do the same thing. And, and if I'm not doing that, then I'm not going to be able to sleep at night, mm. right? So... I think and I think that's kind of the way that businesses, um, you know, are starting to move now. I think a lot more businesses now are starting to take on more um, social responsibility and starting to, um, you know, be, you know, have more, um, a h- higher moral um, standards, um, you know, beyond what just, you know, the bottom line is, you know, just what the profits are that, you know, they are trying to make a difference um, in the communities that the, that, they, uh, that they reside in now uh, as well.
1: Yeah. And I think part of the reason with that too is. It's word spreads so quickly now with social media and uh, well, Instagram, Twitter, and everyone's so contactable and they've got a big networks that if you do the wrong thing, then people find out very, very quickly. So it's, um, and <laughs> That's, it's yeah. Which, yeah, which is a, a good and a bad thing in, in some ways. You know, I think some people, they cop it too much in the media for a minor thing that they've done, like they just get that they might have the 24-hour news cycle just hit them uh, like you probably had when you, were, um, when you got beat up by riot police. You know, it's, um, I think people cop that um, pretty bad these days just with, uh, with how much, you know, stuff people are, can put out online.
0: Yeah, like, you know, we didn't have online um, back then. Or, you know, we might have had like, online newspapers, but we didn't have Twitter or, uh, or Facebook or anything um, yet. But, uh, but even, even with that, you know, I was walking downtown Vancouver and people were coming up to me being like, why did you go out the night before the relay <laughs> and, uh, and party like you were such a disgrace to the country? Right. <laughs> I had people leaving um, messages on my parents answering machine because, you know, they were in the phone book and just leaving all sorts of nasty, um, nasty messages. So I can only imagine how much worse that actually would have been had like, you know, something like Twitter or or Instagram or somebody uh, or one of those actually existed as great as they are. But, you know, there is, like you said, there's always that that downside that, um, you know, some negative news, whether it's real or not actually does, uh, it spreads like crazy.
1: Yeah. And I guess the only good thing or the good thing these days is you would have a chance to defend yourself through Twitter or Instagram. Like you could actually tell your side of the story, whereas back back then you don't have... Yeah, it's just, this is what the newspaper says, so it must be true. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, well, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on the podcast. I've really enjoyed chatting about your, uh, your story when it comes to um, three Olympics and an Olympic bronze and, um, and seeing what you're up to now. So um, congratulations on your career as a swimmer and uh, all the best for this new venture. And uh, I, hope it, uh, I hope it goes well and that you uh, don't face too many, more challenges like that, but I'm sure they'll come up. They always do. But uh, I really appreciate your time and for, um, for sharing your story on the podcast.
0: No, thanks so much, Brendan, for having me on to chat. I really appreciated it.
1: Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like
0: us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com